listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Hal Schurz, and we come to you each week to bring you the information that you need to fight for your health care freedom. This show is sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, which is a nonprofit healthcare think tank. We're the only physician-run, physician-led healthcare think tank in the country. And the Docs for Patient Care Foundation is devoted to the preservation of the doctor-patient relationship and for giving people the information that they need as well to fight for what is important in healthcare and for themselves and for their families. Um, please go to our website, www.d4pcfoundation. That's docs for the number four patient care foundation. Org and make a generous contribution so that we can continue to bring you high-quality shows like The Doctor's Lounge and do all the other projects that we're involved with to continue to work for the American patients in this country. The um, uh, spon- One of the sponsors of our foundation is the... Uh, Heartland Foundation, the Heartland Institute, and we've worked with them, uh, and uh, we're their consultants for their healthcare newsletter. Um, so please go to uh, uh, heartland.org and uh, read about the healthcare positions, which uh, m- many of which we have contributed to. They've been a great strategic partner of ours. Another great strategic partner of the Docs for Patient Care Foundation has been the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., which has done incredibly important health care work. And with me this morning, it, I'm, uh, I'm pleased to uh, have join us in the doctor's lounge a good friend of Docs for Patient Care and of mine, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Bob Moffitt, who um, has been uh, in a number of important health care positions in this country. Uh, he um, has been a uh, assistant director um, at uh, the Office for Personal Management, and then he was an assistant, uh, a deputy assistant secretary at HHS before joining the Heritage Foundation back in 1991. And uh, he is the former director of the Heritage's Center for Healthcare Policy Studies. Um, Dr. Moffitt is probably one of the uh, foremost experts on Medicare in this country. And uh, today's show, we're going to uh, dive into the Medicare problems and uh, also discuss a bit the macro law that uh, is flying under the radar right now, but is starting to surface and gain a little bit of attention. Uh, Last week's uh, uh, show on the Doctor's Lounge by my co-host, Mike Karuchik, was devoted entirely to trying to educate people about this law, and it was a uh, tremendous show. In my opinion, I think it was the best show that he's ever done. And so I highly endorse this and uh, recommend this to everyone who's listening to this podcast, and and, uh, I would have them either go to our website and download that podcast and listen to it, or go to iTunes, where all the uh, uh, Doctor's Lounge podcasts are available, and uh, listen to it to 
get a fairly good um, education and summary about the macro law, which is going to affect everyone. So, uh, Dr. Moffitt, good morning. Good morning, Doctor. How are you, sir? I'm great. How are you? Oh, couldn't be better. Oh, that's great to hear. Um, the uh, the healthcare issues that uh, are are uh, facing us have not gone away, unfortunately. Over the over the last eight years, it seems like they've intensified, haven't they? Oh, there's no question about it. If you're talking about problems of cost, in particular, cost both to the taxpayer and to individuals and families, uh, the costs are going up pretty dramatically, uh, uh, not only in the private sector, but also we're starting to see an uptake, again, an uptake uh, in uh, in Medicare spending, uh, which uh, is uh, look, looks like Medicare is returning to its older patterns of, of very high-cost uh, a high, high, high accelerated high spending. Um, the, um, the, the access is better in the sense that more people are covered by insurance. Obviously that happened, but about eight out of ten of the newly insured people under Obamacare are in Medicaid. So you have to ask yourself a great big question, is that real progress? Because Medicaid has a, a relatively poor performance compared to private health insurance. Can I, can I and, the quality, and the quality of, of care in America is still uh, very uneven. Uh, it all depends on what kind of coverage you have and where you are in the country and and uh, you know your your place of residence and your insurance coverage are pretty decisive if you are in a very very well established uh, employment based uh, plan offered by a company you 're usually in pretty good shape if you 're in medicaid you 're depending upon where you are but you 're usually in not such good shape. Can I challenge that statement that you made a, a minute ago, Bob, sure. about about access improving that more people are covered? Covered by insurance. Well, do you do you um, uh, see that there are more people who didn't have insurance now being covered, but people who did have good insurance before have lost their insurance and because they don't qualify for subsidies they can't afford the premiums uh, that have been jacked up by the insurance companies thanks to um, Obamacare? Well, I mean, what you have is, yes, you have more people who are newly insured. There's no question about that. But at the same time, you also have had, over the past three or four years now, you've had a uh, you've had a crowding out of private employment-based coverage. In fact, in the first year of Obamacare, virtually almost all of the increase in Obamacare coverage through the exchanges was offset by a loss of employment-based coverage. So, yes, in 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 effect, both both statements are true. Um, the big, as I say, the big the big jump is the fact that you know most people who are getting newly insured are people who are getting coverage through Medicaid. Right. So we've exchanged um, private insurance coverage for Medicaid coverage. Well, for in most cases, yes. You know, I, what I'd like to um, uh, touch on first, which I thought was was quite interesting, was. Um, your uh, your testimony uh, before oh, yeah. Congress, um, uh, Dr. Moffitt was on Capitol Hill a couple of months ago, and he uh, addressed a subcommittee on health care of ways and means and talked about um, what the problems in Medicare are and uh, his his opinion about uh, what 
what needs to happen to try to preserve and protect Medicare. So would you would you uh, kind of give the audience a summary of, of what that testimony was all about? Yeah, uh, it was a testimony before the Subcommittee on Health of the House Ways and Means Committee. That is the committee that has oversight over Medicare. Uh, the Ways and Means Committee is arguably the most powerful uh, committee in Congress. It is the tax writing committee, and it has responsibility for, for Medicare uh, itself and, and the other entitlement programs. Um, the uh, Basically, uh, what the subcommittee wanted to do is to have an initial hearing on basically laying the groundwork for Medicare reform uh, either later on this year or in a new Congress with a new president. And they asked me to testify along with... Uh, with uh, uh, Steve Guterman, who is a, a liberal policy analyst uh, with formerly with the Commonwealth Foundation, and a, and a, and a first-rate economist from Harvard University by the name of uh, Kate Baker. And um, they, they asked the three of us to testify. Of course, it's an honor to do so. But anyway, to make a long story short, what I suggested is some fundamental structural programs in Medicare that would do two things. One, it would start to reduce the growth in healthcare spending, but do so in a way that would preserve both the doctor-patient relationship, reduce uh, the regulatory regime which governs the program right now, which is causing an awful lot of angst, not only for doctors, but also for patients. Nobody can really understand, you know, the tens of thousands of pages of rules and regulations and guidelines that people have to suffer with. And finally, uh, it would uh, empower patients to pick and choose the kind of coverage that they want without a lot of third-party interference. The, the, the basic suggestions that I made is, is that the first thing they have to do is start to reduce Medicare's complexity. Medicare is so complex. I mean, nobody can understand it. If you talk to your senior citizens and ask them what's covered by Medicare and what's not, uh, some of them will know, but most of them don't. And, and the reason is, is that it is just an extremely complex system, uh, A, B, C, and D, and uh, Medicare Part A, Part B, Part C, and Part D. But the thing is, in, in the traditional Medicare program, Medicare A and B, uh, you have a crazy quilt of cost-sharing and co-insurance and deductibles that normal people simply do not navigate. And in private health insurance, you don't have anything quite like that. So what, what I suggested to Congress is that they reduce the complexity of the program by combining Medicare Part A, which is the hospitalization program, and Medicare Part B into a single plan, <laughs> just, you know, just like a real insurance plan. And, and, add, and, and instead of having a bunch of deductibles and coinsurance, have a single deductible. A single deductible, single deductible, and, and, and uniform coinsurance. Just simplify the program. The other thing that I insisted that Congress should do is to provide for catastrophic protection for senior citizens in Medicare. As you know, if you're in Medicare, uh, Medic the traditional Medicare program provides no catastrophic protection, and you can be at risk for enormous financial uh, financial consequences if you do not have catastrophic coverage outside of Medicare, and that's why people have have, have to buy basically two policies. They buy their Medicare, they're, they're, they don't buy it. They're enrolled in Medicare Part B, but they also have to uh, get uh, the uh, some kind of Medigap coverage to supplement the coverage they have. So I'm saying that the fragmentation of coverage into separate parts of of Medicare 
uh, is confusing for benefits, and it hinders coordination of care, and it's unnecessarily complex, and it's also, by the way, very costly. I can prove that. I did prove it before the committee. The second thing I recommended is that uh, they have to start. Uh, they have to start. Uh, getting serious about changing the age of eligibility for Medicare. Seniors are living longer now than ever before. Uh, Right now, it's 79.4 years of age, I think, is the average life expectancy. That's going to go up to about 82 within the next 15 or 20 years. And what's happening is seniors are living longer, and that's a great thing. It's a very, very good thing, but they're also living longer on Medicaid. They're living longer in retirement. So back in the old days when Medicare was enacted in 1965, you were in Medicare for like five years normally. Life expectancy was a little over 70 years of age. Today, people are looking at living on Medicare, living in Social Security and Medicare 15 or 20 years. Uh, The founders of the program, I mean, Lyndon Johnson and earlier than that, Social Security, uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, I don't think anybody imagined (laughs) that people would be living this long in retirement, and but that's what's happened. Now, as I say, that's a good thing. But I think what I'm suggesting is they raise the age of eligibility gradually, gradually, not, not fast, gradually, over a period of 10 years from 65 to uh, age 68. But, Lind- then- but Lyndon Johnson knew that it was it was unsustainable, and they cooked the books to, to, uh, make, uh, to get this passed, didn't they? Well, uh... We've got one minute, Bob. So we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna let you uh, kind of uh, uh, develop that thought okay. uh, in, in just a minute. We have got a hard break coming up, but okay. uh, we're gonna we're gonna come back and and uh, talk about uh, uh, Dr. Moffitt's testimony in uh, before the Congress and and uh, and the origins of of Medicare when we get back in the doctor's lounge. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Bob Moffitt from the Heritage Foundation, um, who uh, is uh, uh, mentioned in the uh, book by Bert Lutsky of the 67 conservatives you should meet before you die. So I'm glad I'm glad that we're talking with Bob today before every so so that I fulfill that. Uh, yeah, I'm in pretty good company in that book. <laughs> I have to it pick was, up it was a copy. A great list of people. Gee whiz. I, I, I will I will have to pick up a copy of that. I, I did, did not know that about you. <laughs> I, I, there were things in there that uh, surprised me. Uh, you know. About some of the Hollywood folks that were uh, in there. I oh. mean, it's pr- just interesting. Okay. Anyway. Well, anyway, we were talking about Medicare, and we were um, about Lyndon Johnson, and uh, yeah. and, and we can we can we can uh, digress about that for a moment. But you know, please please do tell, and then let's get yeah. back to your testimony. Yeah, sure. Well, no, I mean, with regard to Lyndon Johnson, I mean, I, I'm not exactly clear what Lyndon Johnson actually thought about it at the time. I can't say that I do. I do know. I do know that Wilbur Mills, who was the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee at the time, was actually uh, fairly conservative on a fiscal, uh, you know, on fiscal matters, and he wanted to make sure that the Medicare program was fiscally sound. When the bill passed, the bill passed. uh, There were enormous margins in the House of Representatives. It passed by 307 to 116 back in July 30th Mm. of 1965, and it passed uh, the Senate by a margin of 70 to 24. What's important to know is that this was a bipartisan effort. A majority of House Republicans supported the creation of Medicare. I mean, that's just a fact, as did a solid plurality of Senate Republicans. So this was a bipartisan effort. Very I dis- think what happened, well, well, I know what happened, but we know exactly what happened. The spending very quickly, uh, the very, very quickly, the spending uh, started to uh, exceed the official projections mm-hmm. right away. I mean, it was just really quite remarkable. And there's a very famous chart that's been published most uh, several places, but right. by the original government actuaries' projections on the cost of Medicare, and they were off wildly. I mean, they were just absolutely, uh, completely off the, the right. you know, in terms of their projections about what would happen exactly. with Medicare. Um, the so what happened from the very very beginning. Uh, Medicare's cost started outrunning its uh, official uh, projections. And, of course, when the CBO got involved in this business, the CBO tried to give better and better projections. And and they did, for the most part. But um, there's no question about it. The, uh, you know, the rising cost of the program over the past 50 years has been a recurrent problem. 
Um, Which brings us back to your testimony in Congress. Right. I mean, we're faced with a situation now where we're looking at some very serious problems uh, that uh, face the entire country. This is not a matter of speculation, really. I mean, the Congressional Budget Office, God bless them, they have been very responsible. Uh, the CBO has recently issued a series of really stern warnings about America's fiscal condition. And uh, they pointed out that, uh, you know, today the, the public debt, uh, uh, that is the, the national debt, amounts to about 76% of America's uh, entire, entire economy uh, measured as gross domestic product. And, you know, uh, the president recently made a comment that, you know, the deficits are declining. But he over, what he often overlooks is that it was under President Obama that annual deficits went where no deficits had ever gone before. Right. Back in 2009, Obama presided over an annual deficit of $1.4 trillion. Mm. I mean, we had never been there. Mm. And what CBO is now projecting is that they're they're poised to rise again, and they're poised to reach the trillion-dollar mark in the next few years. Um, and if we keep going, CBO projects that the debt will amount to 86% mm. of our economy by 2026. And if we continue without, if we don't stop, that it, the debt will, in three decades and 30 years, reach 155% of the gross domestic product, and as they point out, that's a higher percentage than any previously recorded in the United States. Now, when you start getting at that level, when your debt is one and a half times the size of your full economy, you are in Greece. Right, <laughs> and, and and you are you are beyond you are you you are beyond serious trouble here. <laughs> you know, and so this is crazy stuff. And, of course, you know, the CBO has declared repeatedly that the aging of the population and the rising entitlement costs, including the Medicare costs, are going to aggravate this country's fiscal condition. So there's just no question about this. And, you know, when politicians get up and say they don't want to do anything about entitlements, what they're saying is they're willing to gamble, you know, the long-term welfare of the country for a short-term political gain. And, frankly, they're not worth voting for. So that so let's let's go back to how how you would advise Congress to protect yeah. Medicare. So you we well, left off we left off with the second part, which was the second suggestion, which is to increase the age of eligibility. Age of eligibility gradually over the next ten years, <clears throat> from what it is today, sixty five to sixty eight and then index it to longevity. In other words, whatever the longevity of the population is, it would be indexed. Uh, there has been disagreement over the appropriate age of Medicare eligibility, whether it should be 67 or 68. <clears throat> the, uh, in fact, the business roundtable, which is a corporate uh, board, has suggested that it go as high as 70. My colleagues here at Heritage ran the numbers. We think that 68 does the job. It really slows down the growth of Medicare spending and will result in very, very significant savings to the program. Uh, folks today can get health insurance outside of Medicare as a result of the exchanges. You don't have to have the exchanges. You can have a, an individual tax credit system. It doesn't make any difference. But the point is, if you slow the growth uh, of, uh, of Medicare uh, with by raising the age of eligibility, it's going to have a very 
positive impact uh, on Medicare's fiscal condition. The other thing that we do right now is that we we already uh, have a situation where senior citizens who are very wealthy, in other words, a single person with an annual income, and we're talking about the income they file, right, with right, the IRS, right. in excess of $85,000, uh, pays a higher Part B and a higher Part D premium. Um, if it's a couple in excess of 170000 right, uh, they also pay higher premiums. Well, uh, this is, you know, this is current law. The, the problem is that, I mean, that's, that's fine, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, we're talking about just 6% of the total Medicare population. What I have suggested to Congress, and I know this is not going to be popular, but I'm suggesting that we start to lower those thresholds uh, from 85000 to 55000 for individuals and uh, lower that threshold of 170 to 110,000 for couples. Now, I just want to just say for your audience, if they think this is unfair, I just want to point out something that is very, very basic, and that is that the average, uh, the average salary of a single person today in America is $47,800. So what I'm saying is the person who's actually paying 90% of the cost in Medicare, uh, the working population, uh, a member of the working population, is, is but what I'm doing is I'm saying we're setting this even above what people make in terms of their annual income on an annual basis. So, so how do you, an- I, I, know, I think I know the answer to this, but for the audience's benefit, how do you respond then to the, um, the, the arguments that people are paying into Medicare throughout their working life and, yeah. and now, and now you want to, uh, you want to, you want to make it more difficult for me to access the money that I've paid in? Well, first of all, all the money you paid in is gone. <laughs> we do not have a <laughs> the lockbox. It's it, the lo- there's no lockbox. You're telling me? <laughs> no, no, I for all those uh, out in radio land. <laughs> the horror of it all is no. <laughs> there is no lockbox. There's no fund. There's no real trust fund as we know it. It's not like a private sector pension program. It's a pay-as-you-go system. So today's workers uh, pay for today's retirees. And uh, that money is not put aside. I mean, it's put into a, a, the Medicare trust fund, uh, and and the Medicare trust fund spends the money as soon as it gets in. So today's retirees, uh, tomorrow's retirees are going to be fo- financed by uh, tomorrow's workforce. But uh, to uh, you know, to cut to the chase, uh, there is no. <laughs> if you believe that you have paid for your Medicare benefits. You're a candidate for the for membership in the Flat Earth Society. <laughs> there is not a scintilla of evidence that that has happened. Actually, uh, the best work that's been done on this has been done by economists at the Urban Institute, and they say basically it's it's for almost every income category. Uh, people are getting back uh, something like uh, uh, half a million dollars more in Medicare benefits than they paid into the system through their taxes. Uh, the taxes, the payroll taxes uh, that you pay into the system uh, do not cover your, your benefits. Um, so basically, uh, if you look at it on an annual basis, about well, close to 90% 
of the the Medicare uh, funding is uh, financed directly uh, by payroll taxes and transfers of money from the general fund or the general revenues into the Medicare trust funds, into the Medicare program, in order to pay the benefits. Wow. Um, even even Medicare Part B, people think, well, you know, they pay their premium, right? Their premium represents only 25% right. by law of the total cost. The other 75% is picked up by the, by work, taxes. By right. the working, by individuals, uh, working families, well, through, either income, through income taxes primarily. Bob, we're at a hard, another hard break, and, and uh, this is, you know, really important stuff, and we, we will come back and talk a little bit about what the effect of this new macro law is on Medicare and uh, what what that means to all patients around the country sure. when we get back into the doctor's lounge. Just stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Doctor's Lounge is brought to you by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. So please go to our website and uh, and donate generously to allow us to continue to do the work that we're doing and bring you shows like uh, the Doctor's Lounge. My guest today is Dr. Bob Moffitt from the Heritage Foundation, um, one of the foremost experts on Medicare in the U.S., and we've devoted the first couple of segments talking about some of the problems in Medicare and uh, some of the suggestions that Dr. Moffitt made to Congress when he uh, went up to Capitol Hill two months ago to give uh, testimony to the Ways and Means Committee. There's, um, Bob, there's one... Uh, now wrinkle in in Medicare that is going to uh, be a game changer that's flying under the radar uh, up until now. It's starting now to get a little bit of attention, um, but um, but most people still don't know about this, including my colleagues, and and that would be MACRA, the right. uh, Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Act. Yes. And um, this was a disaster 
to begin with, um, we were one of the groups that came out strongly opposing the passage of this law, um, and we did our best to try to educate people on Capitol Hill about why this was bad, but they ignored us and passed it anyway, basically because they had some sponsors who were physicians in Congress, and so the rest of Congress thought, well, gosh, it must be okay because we're getting rid of that horrible um, SGR requiring right. the doc fix but they yeah. but uh it, it it was a stealth bill that allowed the introduction a 260 page introduction into new uh ways to pay doctors who take care of medicare so i know you have strong feelings about this and your buddy jim capretta wrote a, <clears throat> wrote a very good op-ed about this in the wall street journal yesterday yeah, I haven't read Jim's article yet, but anything, um, Capretta is a first, first class analyst, and he's been following this very closely. I haven't followed it, followed it as closely as Jim, but I think, <clears throat> I think your characterization of what happened actually is true. Uh, you know, we've had this situation, as you know, with the sustainable growth rate mechanism for paying physicians, and it was a gigantic policy failure. Um, it was part of the Balanced Budget Act of 1997 that was passed by Republicans in Congress. Gingrich was in charge at that time and, and signed into law by uh, Bill Clinton. And it established a payment mechanism that, frankly, simply did not work. I mean, it tied physician payment basically to performance in the general economy. And any time the physician payment exceeded uh, performance in the general economy, physicians were faced with, as you know, uh, uh, cuts and there were uh, as a result of the SGR there were 17 overrides uh, in the during the course from 1997 till uh, 2015 there were 17 overrides of the proposed cuts or the scheduled cuts automatic cuts to physicians in the Medicare program so uh, your characterization of this is correct if you want to say you know if you want to encapsulate, I guess, the sentiment on Capitol Hill is that we've had enough of this. We have to have a Chinese fire drill every year to prevent doctors from suffering from a 21 or 22 or 23% cut in their Medicare physician payment, which is psychotic. Nobody wants to do that. And so let's fix this once and for all. But I think the, the, the motivation, my impression, you know, being involved in this fight my impression was that the central motivation on the part of members of the House and Senate was simply to kill the SGR, to get rid of this thing, to destroy it, to get out of it. And they they tried, they put together a framework, as you know, to transition to a new system. The, the, the problem now that they've got is that they've created these alternative payment systems. There's a, the, the standard system is what is called a merit-based incentive payment system and it's not mandatory physicians to for physicians to participate in it as a requirement for treating medicare patients but if you don't uh participate in it you uh will uh, you'll get you know payment reductions penalties um, the other option is the so-called alternative payment models uh, including private sector models to improve quality and there would be a bonus payment for people who enroll in it uh, for doctors who enroll in it um, now <clears throat> let me say this 
you know, on paper, right? Right. Doesn't look bad. It's improvement <laughs> over SGR. The problem is the language of the law is to a large extent vague. So the development of the alternative payment models, uh, it's right now it, it, and it's, it, it's in very early stages, but nobody really knows what this payment, alternative payment models are actually going to look like. Well, the alternative payment models, as we know it, are the accountable care organizations. Well, that's right, which are failing. Which are also driving care away from doctors in their private offices and forcing them to sell their practices to hospitals, which are the single most expensive place to deliver care in the healthcare delivery system. That is exactly correct. So in other words, what you're looking at, and I don't think this was, I mean, I honestly do not think that was intended. I'm just saying, I don't think it was intended. Because you're a nice person and and I'm I'm a cynic. (laughs) Let me put it this way. I think a lot of people... A lot of people on the Hill, including, you know, the congressmen who were members of the doctor's caucus, the physicians who supported this thing, felt, gee whiz, with the alternative payment models, we might be able to get, you know, real alternative payments, which will be better for doctors than what we have today. The problem, however, is that many of the most important decisions about the implementation of the law are left to the secretary of HHS in other words, the Obama administration. And their idea of what an alternative payment model should be is radically different from the kinds of ideas that have been floating around among conservatives in Congress. I mean, for example, I mean, one of the things that uh, that happened uh, when the SGR was created was they, the Balanced Budget Act uh, enacted a, uh, a, a statutory restriction on the right of doctors and patients to enter into private agreements outside of Medicare. Yes. It was a disaster. Yes, it is. Now, there were very few people actually did that, but it was, if, if for, for reasons that felt good to you or the patient, if you wanted to deliver services outside of Medicare, you know, why not? The or British ba- do it before or balance, breakfast. Or balance bill a patient. Or balance billing. And, you know, so... so uh, you know, under the terms of the statute, if a patient didn't want to submit a claim to Medicare, maybe it was a psychiatric problem or something that they felt was sensitive and they didn't want any record of it, you know, in the Medicare program, they decided to pay a doctor directly for any reason that that seemed good to them. The patient would not be able to do it unless the doctor could afford to give up his Medicare practice for two years. Now, good Lord, uh, you know, the the unspoken assumption under 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 the Clinton proposal, and that's what it was, was that seniors uh, patients will be gouged by predatory physicians, uh, a class of professionals who kind of bear special right. watching. You know, right. unlike right. for example, right. Uh, lawyers. Right, right, right. We're very uns- doctors are very unscrupulous. Yeah, doctors are very unscrupulous. Anyway, that was that was sort of the uh, absurdity of all this. Right. I think the right policy. Uh, you know, and again, the alternative payment model could work if it were implemented properly. A much better policy would be simply to allow doctors and patients to negotiate any difference between the, what Medicare will pay and the doctor's fees. And under such a policy, Medicare doctors would be allowed to accept base Medicare payment for and forgo, forgo any government bonus if they wanted to do so. Uh, but they would have to, in my view is, if they're going to do that, they would have to re- 
they would have to disclose the prices of their services beforehand, just like a lot of other professionals. Now, that would create real price competition among doctors. It would drive innovation and quality in the healthcare delivery system. What about um, what about so, the, 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 the idea of uh, Medicare becoming a defined... Um, contribution plan where patients had an, like an EBT card and they controlled how they spend the money. Oh, and yeah. Well, that is, in fact, I think the number one Medicare reform. Um, it's not something that can be done overnight, but basically what you would simply do is integrate traditional and competitive Medicare. I'm saying Medicare Advantage, for example, and Medicare Part D into a single program. And um, and under that reform, the government would make a contribution to an, uh, a person's premium, um, and that person could use that uh, that uh, contribution uh, to en- enroll in traditional Medicare if they wanted to do it, or Medicare Advantage, or their former employer's plan if the employer wants to offer retirement coverage, uh, or any kind of private plan, or a health savings account, or whatever they wanted to do. See, I'd like to take uh, it one know. step further and allow people to go shop for their health care so that they can use their benefits where they see fit right. and, and allow and allow the doctors to balance bill if, the, if, the, if, if they want to do it. If they want to do it and, and allow for people to be able to go back to Medicare to get other care that is initiated by a doctor that's not um, uh, participating with this getting paid by Medicare, so to speak. Well, you could pick. You could pick and choose. If you want to be in right. traditional Medicare, fine. Right. But but right now you have a situation where people are leaving traditional Medicare. Exactly. I think. You, I, I I don't. I think you talk about under the radar. Uh, something that is happening that is pretty dramatic. I think is despite the regulatory obstacles that are imposed on private plans and Medicare Advantage, we are seeing a pretty dramatic increase in Medicare Advantage, which are basically private plans that are based on a competitive system. Uh, and right now, it's about one-third of all, all patients in, a, in the Medicare program are in Medicare Advantage. Uh, Medicare prescription drugs is an entirely privately delivered system. And it's successful. And it's successful. Do you know, actually, I mean, I don't, you talk about something that's dramatic. When CBO, when the Congressional Budget Office first projected the cost of Medicare Part D, they were looking at very, very high costs, including, by the way, I would say not just CBO, but a lot of health policy analysts and economists were looking at this and saying, you know what? This thing is going to be a disaster because we're going to just see drug prices go so far out of kilter, you know, this thing will fall apart. But actually, what actually happened is the competition within Medicare Part D, as a result of a growth of private delivery options, resulted in a reduction in the projected cost of 50%. Good Lord, that kind of cost control performance exists nowhere in the cosmos. It mm-hmm. just doesn't happen anyplace else. Right. And that is a tribute to the power of consumer choice and competition. Right. The market works. Right. And if you had a defined contribution system, a lot of other positive things would happen. Uh, specifically, for example, there would be a radical reduction in government bureaucracy and regulation. In other words, in such a system, the competing health plans, not the Medicare bureaucracy, would contract with doctors and hospitals, and it would be a private contract. It wouldn't be any of this 
junk that you have to deal with today with Medicare. Uh, the the employment, uh, the participation in a plan is all be all private. The pro- the provider rates would be private. The premiums and the and the you know and, and the quality of medical services would be transparent in a situation like that. Um, you would have, and, and some plans, for example, would be high deductible plans, or they would be plans that would uh, uh, promote uh, direct payment between doctors and patients and just simply cover catastrophic coverage, which would be reasonable for a lot of people. Not everybody, not everybody, but for a lot of folks, it would right. be reasonable. Um, you don't have real high Medicare costs uh, for people between the ages of 65 and 70. No, the, most of them are end-of-life care. Uh, yeah, the big yeah we we know what they are. the The cost double uh, between the ages of seventy and ninety. Mm-hmm. That's the basic. Uh, that is the best data that we have on Medicare spending patterns. But I mean, the truth of the matter is, at the end of the day, I mean, you're talking about you know there. What you want is good catastrophic coverage, and you want you know plans that have end of life care. Uh, you know, uh, hospice coverage and things like that. Well, we're at uh, our last hard break before the end of the show. We have one more segment left, and uh, we could talk probably for another couple of hours. Um, This is... This is this is no shortage of material, and and you are a tremendous guest, Bob. So we'll come back and finish up in Doctors Lounge. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Last segment in the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio with my guest, Dr. Bob Moffitt. Um, I'm not going to, I want to get right into this last thing. There's a couple of more points I want to cover, Bob. I want to get back to macro real quick. Sure. You, you know, the, the thing that uh, uh, my co host, Mike Karuchik, pointed out on his show last week is that. Uh, the uh, people who are behind um, moving the progressives, I guess, is really what we're talking about. Have, yeah. And it's not just progressives; it's everybody in Washington has has um, uh, made healthcare into a shell game. We, when we started talking about the problems, we were talking about cost and access, and now there's been problem substitution, as he calls it. So instead of cost and access, now we're talking about quality and value. And in order to do that, you've got to make a scapegoat, and the scapegoat are the doctors. 
The doctors are the ones who are um, needing to uh, um, uh, fulfill the the public demand, as they call it, for quality and value, despite the fact that there really is no public demand, and which which leads us to macro, which is how we're going to put the burden on the on the provider community, despite the fact that it's only eight or nine percent of the healthcare spending, and and, and so the the thing that I want to just you know ask you is the things that are that are making up the the MIPS or the um, the uh, uh, the alter the the um, uh, payment uh, the, the reporting the for reporting uh, 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 criteria uh, for uh, macro is uh, quality reporting resource use clinical practice improvement and advancing care. And, right. and and what these what these really mean, and the physician community is finally learning about this and waking up, is that the, that that the health and human services is going to have access, real time access into into the medical records in doctors' offices, and that um, and that doctors are going to have to spend an enormous amount of resources to fulfill the bureau, bureaucratic requirements. Isn't this going to in my opinion, I think it's going to drive more doctors out of Medicare. What, 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 do you, what say you? Well, I think I think that's a legitimate concern. Let me let me tell you. I think uh, this is not turning out the way some, not all, but many of the Republicans in the House who supported this. This is not turning out the way they expected it to turn out. First of all. First of all, they do not have, and you know it's pretty clear, they do not have a consensus yet on what, in fact, the quality measures are or should be. They just don't. The other problem is is that um, if the goal is to move away from traditional fee-for-service to a payment system that rewards value and volume of care, they have, rather than the volume of care, they've got to make this clear what they mean. Um, the truth of the matter is, is that it's pretty evident that they themselves are not clear about it. And I'm talking about the federal bureaucracy, the Medicare bureaucracy that's in charge of this. I think that, in, in particular, the uh, the Medicare, uh, the MIPS program, as you talk about it, is going to make traditional Medicare increasingly unfriendly to physicians, and physicians are going to seek payment uh, places uh, somehow. Uh, someplace else which ultimately comes back to hurt patients oh absolutely i mean i think uh, you know speaking about uh, you know patient access i mean that is something that uh, you know that is really that is a very very serious problem because you know we're we're talking about historically medicare physicians have you know had no problem with uh, taking care of medicare patients but that was you know that that could be changing. I mean, the, the the real problem is that you know it's becoming more and more difficult for doctors to operate uh, in this system. Um, and if you look at surveys of members of the medical profession about what drives them crazy, it's the hassle factor, uh, you know, of uh, of government regulation, uh, the reporting requirements. Uh, the administrative costs that they're being asked to absorb. Uh, and that's becoming a very serious difficulty. I mean, to the point where, you know, 
doctors do not want to practice Medicare. Now, that, that doesn't mean that physicians are going to give up all their Medicare patients. What it does mean is that physicians are going to um, be reluctant to take new Medicare patients. And that, I think, you know, given the, the radical change in our demographics is going to be a serious problem. Well, they, they, Over, doctors may, may be actually giving up Medicare because of the decreasing reimbursements. The reimbursement, the potential decrease in reimbursement is dramatic. It's, it's up to 9% in, in some, in some instances. And, and this system, Medicare, you, we've spent a lot of time talking about it, is broke and it's, it's on a, on a path to going over the cliff. And, um, and so they, there's got to be drastic changes. So this system of new re, system of reimbursement um, has got to be um, at best a zero sum game, and they're going to be winners and losers. And it's been projected based on 2014 studies that the uh, practices with under 25 doctors are going to there's a better than 50 percent chance that they're not going to be able to fulfill the criteria, and they're going to make less money. And so, and so, so the the net result is going to be that doctors are either going to get out of Medicare or sell their practices to hospitals, driving care again into hospitals. And I think that this is again, this is the cynic in me, and where you and no, I may I, disagree. No, you're right. I, no, look, I mean the, the 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 Medicare bureaucracy itself estimates that under the merit-based incentive payment system, MIPS, as you talk as you describe it. That about 87% of solo practitioners, that is to say doctors who are in practice for themselves, are 87% are going to face penalties. And, and this could be the end. That's a disaster. Right. It, it's, it's the beginning of the end of private practice. We've seen right. pri- private practice disappearing already, 65%. It is, and it is the most important thing to remember about this, it is exactly the opposite result of what the overwhelming majority of Americans want. Exactly, exactly. And this exactly is exactly the opposite. Uh, the overwhelming majority of Americans want a relationship with a doctor. They want a personal physician. We know that. I mean, the survey research is, doesn't lie. The problem that we're faced with is doctors are being asked to do more for less. Um, and most physicians say that, you know, right now they're working at full capacity, they're overextended. Um, the average physician income, in fact, uh, has been actually declining. Uh, the decline actually has already taken place. Uh, in, in primary care, it's the largest. It's about 10% decline. And, um, you know, Congress, you know, should realize that this Medicare program is having a direct impact on private sector pricing, too, because when... Uh, when uh, when you get a uh, a decrease in Medicare fees over time, that also contributes to a decrease. In, there's a spillover effect mm-hmm. in the private sector. So private sector uh, 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 companies respond to these broad based you know rate changes over several years, but they also start to decline. So no, this is a serious matter. This right. I think it's a very serious matter. I, I, you and I have talked about this before, right. but I think that demoralization of the medical profession is one of the it, it's there you know there's no number on it but the not the demoralization of the medical profession is one of the most serious problems facing ordinary americans and this could be a, a, a an entirely uh different topic that we cover on a different day but before i you know we run out of time i want to spend the last couple of minutes picking your brain because this is this you said 
just a second ago that most Americans want a relationship with their doctor and they trust their doctor, which brings us to politics, which which we um, uh, must cover in the last couple of minutes. So Hillary Clinton, we pretty much know what we are going to get if she becomes the president. And uh, you spent the beginning of your career at Heritage fighting back against Hillary Care, which which uh, is a more extreme version of Obamacare, and I think what we're heading toward if she becomes president. With with a Trump presidency, we don't know what we're getting. So so, what is your advice to uh, to a Trump presidency? You've got like a minute to to sum this up. Well, I, the fact of the matter is, on on health policy, Donald Trump has been all over uh, the lot. Uh, I do policy; I don't do politics. But I would, I would urge uh, Mr. Trump and his policy team to study closely uh, a lot of the work that has been done by a lot of first-rate economists. I'm not just talking about the Heritage Foundation, but I'm talking about the whole panoply of health policy analysts on the conservative side of the, the aisle who have studied this stuff for years. And listen to docs for patient care. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the truth of the matter is, to understand it, the, my, and speaking about physicians in particular, my impression, and I've had 30 years of experience in this, my impression is that most members of Congress who vote on this, they don't like this issue. They don't like health policy generally. I mean, they don't like it. I mean, there's some who do like it and know it and understand it. Most of them do not like it. It is fraught with danger. They're afraid of making a mistake. If you make a mistake, people can get hurt. You don't want to look like an idiot. It's a complex subject. It takes a lot to learn it. The problem, I think, is that members of the medical profession who are on the ground, they have to explain in simple plain English to members of Congress how their decisions are affecting their ability, the doctor's ability, to do their job. To my, it's my impression, and, I, and don't get me wrong on this, and, I, and, you know, I, I, and, and this is really an important message, but I honestly think that the doctors have got to do a better job communicating one-on-one with members of Congress because it's not happening through the general uh, medical uh, organizations to the extent that it should. So you hear that, everybody? Anybody who's a doctor out there needs to do a better job. And if you're a patient out there, you need to demand of your doctor to engage with people in government so that they understand the problems that they're facing. Right. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is these things are happening. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking at a situation over the next 50 years where you're going to have a dramatic increase in the number of people people who are senior citizens, and we are already projecting a shortage of physicians, primarily primary care right. physicians. Right. This is very. This is a bad situation, so. and, <laughs> and I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, it's a very very bad situation. Well. You're going to have a, a tremendous increase in supply, and you have a shrinking or a tremendous increase in demand, and you have a shrinking, shrinking supply, supply right. of medical practitioners. Well, I hate and, to I hate to close this show on a negative note. No, but but you know what? You've been a tremendous guest. I always enjoy having you on, and I hope that we can get you back in the doctor's lounge real soon. It's been way too long since we've had you on, and we can talk about a lot more. And uh, and please please come back. And, and join us. We really uh, appreciate you being on today, Bob. 
Uh, yes, Hal, thank you very much, and it's always a pleasure, and you can count on me. Okay, great. Well, thank you again, and uh, be, uh, join us again when we come back in the next uh, episode of The Doctor's Lounge. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.